0: So I kind of gave you this little, uh, a little bit of a of kind of a hint where we are going today. So we did this five week, sort of six weeks if you count Easter, look at the truth, the theology behind the death of Jesus. So we explored that and and that kind of rolled into this idea of doubt and fear. What are the doubts and fears that I have? Um, we looked at Thomas and we talked about how his doubts and fears were real and that, that Jesus met him in the middle of those and that put down our doubts and fears because they demonstrate a lack of faith, but the reality is is that our fears are real and Jesus will step in. So what is our response? We explore doubts and fears. And then last week I began to talk about how do we live in sort of the the complexity of having real doubts and fears yet being called to live with assurance, confidence, um, certainty in our salvation. And we sort of pinned those things side by side and we explored what that might look like. So these past two weeks have sort of been a wrestling with the things that take place between my ears right the thoughts about doubts my kind of understanding of the complexity of living with an assurance and the reality of the fact that I, I still struggle with things and I'm still afraid of stuff and I still wonder sometimes God where are you right so so this morning what I thought we'd do is we'd step out of that place between out of that and in our skull and we would begin to kind of say what how do I begin to live this out so how does this expression of my faith in Christ and my salvation become a practical experience? And so we're going to be in the book of James chapter 1 this morning, Bible. and We're going to begin to talk about what it looks like when we begin to live this sort of truth of our faith, of our salvation out around us, especially in response to God's... I want you to go ahead and, uh, and grab it, and we are going to be in James chapter 1. This morning. So, if you've got that, I want you to. F- I may. Mike, do I have to switch? To, Mike, do I have to switch to the handheld? Is it cutting in and out? If it is, let me know. Um, James chapter one. Before we open it together, let's uh, let's pray. God, we love you, and we thank you so much that you desire relationship with us, and that your word is is truth. And as we're going to look at it this morning, it is living and active. It is sharper than any double edged sword. It penetrates even the dividing joints and marrow, soul and spirit. God, it is. It is your word, and Father, as we say each week, an encounter with your word is an encounter with you, and and I deeply believe that. And so God, I pray that as we encounter your word this morning, what we'd have is this real, authentic encounter with the risen Lord. And that God, you would speak to our hearts, that you would move in us, and that you would draw us into your presence. So take a moment right where you are, just in your own sort of heart, just ask God to teach you something this morning. Pray for someone beside you, in front of you, behind you, even if you don't know their name, just pray that God would move in their life. Just be in the habit of praying for other people. I know it's a little maybe a little odd, but whisper for them. Lord, we turn this morning over to you. It is yours and yours completely. Pray that our hearts. And we ask this in the risen name of Jesus, our Savior, and our life. Amen. So if you got your Bible one quick little background James there's, there's sort of mentions of a guy by the name of James in the New Testament right the first is James the disciple the apostle son of Zebedee brother of John the one that we're sort of in the gospels at least all right then we have James the son of Alphaeus, who is sort of known as James the lesser or James the younger kind of less mentioned, but he's also a James in there. There's a James who's the the father of a guy named Judas, not Judas Iscariot, but another Judas, and he's mentioned in there. And then finally we have James, the half-brother of Jesus, right, leader of the church in Jerusalem. And uh, that James is the one that's kind of uh, attributed to writing this book, this letter that we have. He's the leader of the church in Jerusalem, so not to be confused with these other guys. This is the James that was the half-brother, not full-brother because they had the same mother but not the same father. Obviously, Jesus was God's son, so half-brother of Jesus. Wrote this letter as an expression of really what a life that follows Christ not only looks like, but how it matched in word and action, and actually the letter's really about consistency, and scholars have gone back to and what the letter means, and what it doesn't mean, and all those kind of things, but if you really read the book of James, what's very clear is this. James is talking about this single fact, that if we're going to claim to be followers of Christ, if we're going to say, Jesus, I follow you, then our lifestyle has got to match that. That we can't just be people that proclaim a truth or a, a faith in Christ and have it not matched in how we live. So the whole letter can really be summed up with this idea of authenticity. I'm going to be authentic in my proclamation of who Jesus is in my own life. So that's where we're gonna kind of be. And we're picking up of James chapter one, and I'm gonna actually switch to this mic here because this other thing's making me crazy. So we're gonna be James, James chapter 1 a little bit like Justin Timberlake, <laughs> getting this in-ear monitor out so I can really get the vocals going. You know, I had a girl one time, true story, I was in Sam's, and Meredith was with me, and this was not too long ago, actually, so some of you think that, but she stopped me, and she was at giving away free beef jerky samples, and, you know, because it's Sam's, and she stopped me, and she goes, I don't know, not, I do not know why I'm telling you this story, so she goes, do you, has anybody ever told you that you look exactly like Justin Timberlake? I lie to you not, and so I ended up with a year's worth of beef jerky, which was awesome. Um, so I've got a lot of salted cured meat at my house. So I kind of feel like, you know, if that's what, now you're all looking going, yeah, I can see it. Right, okay, so, so we're in the book of James chapter um, 1, and we're going to be in the, the back end of it. In the first part of James chapter 1, he's really kind of going through and exploring this idea of saying, look, claiming, as a follow, claiming to be a follower of Christ means that your lifestyle the things that you say, the way that you speak to people, your tongue, the things that come out of your mouth have got to match that proclamation. So he's going to kind of continue in that line of thought and we're going to pick up in James chapter 1, verse 22. So if you've got your Bible, we're going to pick it up together and go all the way down to the end of the chapter. Alright, so this is James 1, 22, going down through 27. Do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. Anyone who listens to the word but does not do what it says is like a man who looks at his face in the mirror and after looking at himself goes away and immediately forgets what he looks like. But the man who looks intently into the perfect law that gives freedom and continues to do this, not forgetting what he has heard, but doing it, he will be blessed in what he does. If anyone considers himself religious yet does not keep a tight rein on his tongue, he deceives himself in this religion and his religion is worthless. Religion that God our Father accepts as pure And faultless is this, to look after orphans and widows and their distress and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. So James kind of continuing in this sort of chapter of saying, look, we are called to live a life of consistency, authentic consistency. A life where our words and our claims match how we live. That That expression of saying, Jesus, you are my Lord and Savior begins to be matched by how I live. And so he picks up this thought by saying this, do not merely... Listen to the word of God, but instead do what it says. So don't listen to it and deceive yourself, but do what it says. Now the word that James is talking about is actually this sort of kind of larger picture of the word of God, which includes the written, which would be the law and the prophets and the writings of the Old Testament, the proclaimed, which would be the words of the apostles, right?, The words of of Paul and the revealed, which would be the movement of the Holy Spirit. So really when we talk about the word of God in the New Testament, really what we're talking about is the the written and the proclaimed and the revealed word of God. Whether it's through Christ or through the apostles or through the Old Testament, it's the whole picture. And scripture has a a word for it that sort of refers to that line of scripture that is God's word as graphe. It's a Greek word that just sort of means the sacred text, the holy text sort of spoken word of God. And so it encompasses all that. So when James says, listen, do not merely listen to the word of God, he's actually not just talking about this Bible as we have it today with all of its books. Because in that point in time, this didn't exist in this form. So he's saying God's word, both the written and the proclaimed and the revealed word of God, do not merely listen to it and so deceive yourselves. So he's basically saying, listen. The word, the proclaimed, the revealed word of God, the written word of God, we are called to obey it, to live it. It is not a mere suggestion guide for our lives. At some point in time, we have to decide that when we hear God's word, written, spoken, revealed, we have got to live it out. It has to move us to obedience, all right? And so what he's basically setting us up for is that how we approach our life, our words and our actions, the things that we do as followers of Christ, that that consistency is important, but it's equally as important that, the consist- that we have consistency between the word of God and our lives. So not just claiming that I'm a follower of Christ, going to match the way that I live, but when I hear and read and see God's word, I have to match my life to that as well, equally as important. And most of us understand the importance of authenticity, especially when it comes to life and action, right? We've all had people in our lives, maybe even especially in the church, that have, have told us to do something, And demanded something from us and then refused to or kind of didn't live that way their own self. And we saw that hypocrisy and we realized that how silly it is when someone demands something, yet they won't even, there's an inconsistency there. And so we understand the idea that if I'm going to, you know, say I'm a believer, then I've I've got to have that match. But what James is saying is not only that, but when it comes to the word of God, that consistency has to be equal as well. That we can't just be listeners or hearers of God's word. But we have to be able to say yes to God. Now this is interesting. I, I deeply believe this is interesting because James says something really powerful. He says, do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. Now here's something I would never thought of before. And maybe you have and, 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 or maybe you haven't. But when we live lives that hear a word from the Lord, whether it's written, whether we read it, whether we encounter it in scripture. And God gives us a command. God calls us to do something. And we do not do that. We are living a lie. We are living in deception. Because the Bible says that when God gives us a command, when God's word calls us to something, whether that's revealed, spoken, or, or spoken to our hearts, when God commands us and we do not live in obedience, we are deceiving ourselves. James says it. When we're just listeners, not causing us to move, we deceive ourselves. Therefore, we are living a lie. Now, most of us don't like to hear that because that's really kind of, well, it's convicting. It's convicting. Because I know there are things in my life that God has called me to that I refuse to do. Maybe because I'm petrified or I'm afraid or don't really know what it looks like. Or maybe I, I, I just want to not let go of that thing. But I know that God is calling me to it. And when I live in disobedience, when I refuse to follow God, to submit and obey to his word, I am living a lie. And, and a lot of times we don't like to use that kind of harsh language, but it doesn't make it less True. That if we are mere listeners, mere hearers of God's word, and we sit here on a Sunday morning or wherever, and we hear God's word proclaimed, and God speaks to us, or God teaches us something, He convicts your heart of something, and you walk out of these doors unchanged, we're living a lie. Why? Because we're deceiving ourselves as mere hearers. So most of us, by the very nature of what we do, we are hearers and listeners. We really are. We are gatherers. We gather together, even on a Sunday morning, and we hear and we listen to God's word. But the call really becomes, what do I do when God has convicted me, challenged me, or moved me? We're called to become doers. People that actually put those things into practice. And I believe that we're doers as long as it's comfortable. Like, when I hear God, when I come encounter with the Holy Spirit, and God convicts me of something, I am all in if it fits within my paradigms. If it fits within my comfort and my understanding, I'm all in. But what happens when God's call, when God's word doesn't fit in my paradigms? doesn't fit into the things that I want to do or actually is, is petrifying because I don't want to let go of whatever this piece of safety net is in my life, then what do I do? And this becomes a real question for most of us as followers of Christ because we are hearers and we are listeners and we are nodders and we are ameners and we are yes and yes and yes until it draws me out of my comfort. So how many of you sat here last week, and I'm not actually asking to raise your hands, but how many sat here last week and were convicted about the fact that God may be calling you to get more into his word or to pray? We were talking about ways that we can live with assurance. We talked about getting into the word of God. We talked about developing prayer lives. And how many of you were saying, yes, I need to do that. I believe that God is calling me to do that. We walked out, we went to lunch on Mother's Day, and not one thing changed from that Sunday to this Sunday. Because we are usually hearers and listeners. But what James is saying is that at some point in time, the way that we live has to begin to match the things that we say we claim about Christ. But more so, the way that we live has to match what the Word of God says. And not just the Bible, but God's spoken, revealed truth to our lives. So we are living in deception when we refuse, or whether it's by intention or not, to be obedient to God's Word. We're deceiving ourselves, we're living lies. Because God is calling us to something that we're yet to turn our lives over to. So part of what it means to step out and say, God, I want to live in a way that honors you, is saying, I want to live what you call me to. I want my life to be that kind of of authentically consistent, if you will. So we're called to obey. and, And that's kind of what James says in this little simplicity. He says, do not merely listen to the word of God and so deceive yourselves, but do what it says. In other words, obey. Obey. Now, Most of us are, like I said, are really good at this as long as it fits within our understanding and our paradigms. But what happens when it it doesn't? Well, we've sort of been trained by our Christian subculture, right? And I think somewhat fooled by our Christian subculture to use phrases like, I'm going to pray about it. Or I'm going to seek guidance or wisdom. Or I'm going to look for discernment on that. Let me tell you something. When God's word tells you something, when God says pray, seek my face, go, when you feel it clearly in your heart, it is not an invitation to pray to see if God is really telling you that. God has spoken. He has told you. It's time to do. But most of us use those things as a way of putting off what we know God has called us to already through his word. We are not pushed in directions of obedience. We're pushed in directions of discernment until I can figure out a way to fit that categorically into my life where I like it. But living as a life as a, living life as a follower of Christ is about saying yes to Jesus even at times when it doesn't make sense. Even at times when it doesn't fit into our paradigm. Some of you are sitting here today knowing that God has called you not only to something, but maybe to rid your life of something. That there is, in, in James chapter, just a couple of verses earlier, he calls people to rid their lives of moral filth. Define that however you want to in your own life. But he's saying rid your life of moral filth. That's not an invitation by God to pray over it and say, you know, maybe God, I don't know, maybe I should really look at this or is it really that bad? No, you know what those things are. God has already convicted you about it. Seeking another several months, years, whatever of discernment until someone tells you something that you want to hear, right, is not really what it means to be obedient. And most of us live that way. We're hearers and we're listeners and we're doers as long as it fits within our paradigm. But when it doesn't, it's something I need to pray about and contemplate until I can figure out a way to wiggle it into my life where I like it. And we live in mediocrity when we do that. And that's why the majority of us as followers of Christ feel like our lives are passionless. We feel like we're just sort of existing. That we have somehow lost our deep passion and desire and drive. And we become complacent with life in the middle. We're restless. God is calling us to things and we are waiting for them. We're trying to make them fit into structures in our life where we like them. And following Christ does not look that way. It is messy and it is dirty and it is uncomfortable. And the call to Christ is one to come and die. It's not one to come and feel comfortable. Jesus' very invitation to the disciples was for them to leave everything and follow him. Families, life, nets, comfort, all those things and follow Jesus. It wasn't an invitation that was open for discernment. Hey, that's great. I really appreciate. it. I'm going to go back and talk it over with my parents. We're really going to pray about it. And maybe at the end of the summer, when I've saved a bunch of money, I could probably do that. That'd be great. Jesus, thank you so much. It wasn't that kind of invitation? It was a drop your nets and say, "Oh, okay." Now I don't know about you, and I'm not going to tell you what it is it God's calling you to. And it may not be something dramatic like, "Oh my gosh, I've got to move to you know Burma and uh, get a melon cart and you know sell melons to the Burmese." Like it, it may not be it. Right? Maybe your call is just that there's this one thing in your life that you've let to. You to let go of. And, and you know it's killing you and you know it's terrible, but you're afraid of what to do without it. Maybe it's a broken relationship that you know that God has been calling you to forgive or mend for years. To pick up the phone and call your mom, your brother, your sister, whatever. But you don't do it. But you know God's calling you to it. When we live that way, we're living in disobedience. Sometimes we think the call of God are these kind of radical, dramatic kind of, I've got to leave my work at, at Devon, and I've got to, you know, do whatever. Or I've got to go. It's not always that way. Sometimes God's whispers of obedience are for the small things in our life. Saying, what if you just trusted me with this? What if you just gave it to me? Right? So what I'm saying is simply this. What James is really saying is that don't merely listen. Don't show up here every Sunday and go nod and, and be mildly entertained. And then walk out of these doors, hearing God move in your life, and do nothing. When we do that, we deceive ourselves, and it's a lie. Listen to the example that James gives. He gives an interesting example about this. He says, anyone, verse 23, who listens to the word but does not do what it says is like a man who looks at his face in the mirror. And after looking at himself, goes away and immediately forgets what he looks like. So there's the example. So anyone that does this is like a man that walks up to a mirror looks at himself, and then walks away and immediately forgets what he looks like. So so what's that example really mean? What's the purpose of a mirror? Well, the purpose of a mirror is basically to reflect. Perhaps there's nothing more true, right, materially in this world than a mirror. When you look in the mirror, you see exactly what you are, right? It doesn't hide anything. The older I get, the more I realize that when I look in the mirror, right, I think to myself, how in the world am I still so ridiculously good looking? No, I look in the mirror and I go, Where did that come from? Why is that black hair there? And why is that wrinkle? And who is this old man looking back at me, right? We begin because the mirror is true. And it shows all of our blemishes and all of our flaws. But what it does is it reflects who I truly am. Now, not on the inside, of course, but on the outside. There's no hiding from the gray hair. There's no hiding from this. There's no hiding from that. I have scars under my eyes from an accident when I had when I was a kid. Like, there is no hiding those blemishes, So if a man walks to a mirror, a person walks to a mirror, and they look at it, and they immediately turn away, and they forget what they look like, and they go back, and they look again, and they forget what they look like, what's the purpose of the mirror? Well, nothing. It's silly. It's foolish. We look in the mirror to see what we look like, right? That's kind of what James is saying. So he says, that's a foolish thing to do. So listen to this, verse 25. But the person, the man who looks intently into the perfect law that gives freedom and continues to do this, not forgetting what he has heard. But doing it will be blessed by what he does. So he says, so kind of in correlation, the person that looks into the perfect law that gives freedom, not forgetting what that freedom is, but begins to live it and act on it, right, he will be blessed. Here's what James is basically saying. The perfect law of God that he's referring to is the law that was handed down to the Israelites. It was God's command for them. But it was totally unattainable to be lived correctly because of our sinful nature. So God in his infinite, amazing, extravagant wisdom and love sent Jesus Christ, his son, to die, to fulfill, to complete the law. His life, death, death, and resurrection was the fulfillment of God's perfect law. That if we trust and believe in Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior, right, we are made complete. The law is fulfilled. We still have blemishes and we are still broken and we are still sinful, battered, and bruised. However, the perfectness of Christ, as we talked about five weeks ago, covers us. That our sinfulness is exchanged for God's glory. So what James is saying, when you gaze into the perfect law that gives freedom now because of Christ, the law gives freedom. And it compels us to live differently. Because when I look in the mirror, what I see is, yes, I see my broken, sinful nature. With all of my issues and all of my struggles and all of my fears and all of my failures. But what I also see is in the middle of all of that, God said, I love you so much that he gave me his son. And he no longer sees me from my blemishes. But he sees me perfect in Christ. And what James says is that's freedom. The perfect law fulfilled by Christ is freedom. And it should change everything. Because of what Jesus did for me, because of what he did for you, it should change the way that we live. That I no longer looking at that scarred version of myself in the mirror, walking away and forgetting about it. But the law of God, the perfect, fulfilled law of God changes me. Because I did nothing to deserve it, but he sent his son Jesus to give me life. And that compels me to live differently. And when I live that way, I'm blessed. I don't think James is talking about being blessed in material ways. Because I'll tell you this, following Christ, right, will not... Give you things. Following Christ is costly. It costs the disciples their very lives. It costs people. It is costly being a follower of Christ. So we're not talking about blessing, not saying, yes, Jesus, I will obey you, and I've got some kind of prosperity gospel where thousands of dollars will rain down from the sky, and it will all be great. The reality is, is that saying yes to Jesus in obedience sometimes leads to more complicated lives. However, it leads to joy And it leads to fulfillment. And it leads to a life that says, God, I want your glory and not mine. And there is nothing, nothing better than that as a follower of Christ. So this is what James is saying. Look, he's going, don't live a lie. If God is calling you, speaking to you, if you see God's revealed truth and you're convicted, live in obedience. Right? Because God has already done for you what you can't do for yourself. Right? Right? So don't be like that person that looks in the mirror and walks away and is foolish. Instead, look into the law of God and realize who you are. You are free in Christ. You are not held in bondage by that lie or the world or whatever everybody else tells you you are. You are not that person. You do not have to be slave to whatever it is you did 15 years ago, 5 years ago, or even last night. Because when you look into the law, you see freedom. In other words, Jesus gives you a new life. And it changes everything. Listen to the rest of this chapter. James goes on to say, if anyone considers himself religious, he does not keep a tight rein on his tongue. He deceives himself and his religion is worthless. Religion that our God the Father accepts as pure and faultless is this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. So James wraps up this chapter by saying this. So if we're just kind of committed to the outward appearance, right, if we're committed to the idea of religion, then it has to be consistent, authentically consistent, we can't just say, Jesus, I believe you, I'm going to follow you, and then live a life that is completely different than that. And James refers back to some things he talked about in the first kind of part of chapter 1 where he says, you can't claim to be religious, to be a Christ follower, and not be able to keep a uh, kind of rein on your tongue. In other words, you can't say yes to Jesus and then speak to people any way you want to. You can't say yes to Jesus and then live life in your own way while it's comfortable, ignoring the things that God is calling you to. He's saying that's not a consistent life. At some point in time, when you look into the perfect law of God and you realize that you've been set free by the love of Jesus, our living response should be obedience. He said religion that is merely kind of giving lip service to God by saying, yeah, I show up to church on Sundays, I mean, surely I'm saved, right? That's what that means. And then lives in a completely, totally different way on the inside or the out is worthless. It's worthless. But James says there actually is a picture of religion that God desires, that's pure. And he gives a couple of interesting examples. He says the first part of this religion that God finds faultless and pure and that God desires is to look after the orphan and the widow in their distress. And the second is not to be polluted by the world. Now I find this interesting, right, because James could, could come up with a whole lot of things to sort of describe what a picture of a Christ follower looks like. But he chose two things, and the first one is really powerful. You want to know what, what true, authentic Christ following looks like? Love those that are unlovable. Love those the world has tossed out. Love the marginalized. Love the broken. Not because you have to, because you gained something from it, because that's what God did for you. See, the picture in scripture is that we're just as broken as the, mar- as the marginalized widow and the orphan, right? If we really want to unpack scripture, we'll see that we are the broken, sinful adulterer. That we are separated from Christ. That the world, we are that crippled beggar that is outcast. And yet Jesus, in his ultimate, extravagant, amazing love, draws us into a relationship with him and calls us to love the world the same way. And it's not always easy. So what James is saying is that true religion, true followers of Christ, see the world the way that Jesus did. So you've got people around you that in distress. Love them the way that Christ loved you. Demonstrate that to them. Let your lifestyle match the things that you proclaim. Go ahead and get involved with people that, that don't look like you, that don't live the same way you do, that the world is tossed aside. Find the orphan, the fatherless, and the widow. And in that culture, those were the, the outcasts. Throw them with the cripple and, and, the, and those that are begging, and they were the worthless. They were the ones that no one wanted to pay attention to. And James says, begin there. And then he says, but don't just live outwardly. Protect yourself from being polluted by the world, which I find powerful because if we really want to unpack that, and I had a whole other hour to do it, then this world wants to pollute your mind and it wants to pollute your heart. I'm not just talking about morally, I'm just talking about with lies. I mean, I have a sixth grade daughter, and the world is speaking lies into her heart about what she has to look like, about what she should do, about what it means to be 12, about who she is, about her identity. It doesn't just stop with 12-year-olds. It's in all of our lives. The world speaks lies to me about what a man looks like, about what a father looks like, about what success looks like. Our minds are polluted. And I'm just talking about don't watch MTV. I'm talking about like we are polluted. The world wants to sell us things that are contrary to what God has for us, both with ideas of calling, sexuality, morality. We are easily polluted. And James says, part of what it means to be a true follower of Christ is to see the world the way Jesus did and protect your heart from being polluted by the lies of the world. And it's not just saying don't go to R rated movies, he's saying don't believe lies. Quit believing the lie of the enemy that tells you you're worthless, you've been bought by a price, you are beloved, and you are redeemed, and you are adored by God. Quit looking at the mirror and seeing the lie, instead, see the freedom. Instead of seeing all the blemishes and all the things, look at that and realize what God calls you and what he has done and how he has redeemed you from brokenness. I find this really powerful because the truth is, is that that idea of being polluted, right? Think about what pollution does. It just slowly infiltrates itself until the next thing you know, years down the way, it's everywhere. Right? Pollution starts with just a small little thing. And over time, it grows and grows and grows until the entire river, the entire whatever, the entire sky, whatever it is, it's just what you know and you breathe it and you live it. Trying to reverse pollution is nearly impossible. And this is what James is saying. He's saying over the course of time, you've allowed the lies of the world to pollute your mind and your heart, right? Reversing that is nearly impossible, so don't let yourself be polluted in the first place. I'm not going to be a part of it. All this, to bring back to this little simple idea, what is God calling you to? And I'm not talking about dramatic calls, but what is God calling you to? What's be whispering to your heart? What's the conviction that you feel? And why aren't you saying yes? Why are you not saying, okay, I'm going, I'm stopping, I'm doing this, I'm ridding my life of this, I'm going to make that phone call, whatever it is. Why? What is holding you back? Because whatever it is, it's causing you to live a lie. Living as a follower of Christ means saying yes to Jesus, even when we don't understand, even when it's uncomfortable, because it always leads to God's glory. True followers of Christ say, Jesus, I want to see the world like you see it. I want to be obedient like you were, because Jesus was ultimately obedient. Father, if there's any other way, please take this cup from me, but not my will, but yours be done, is what Jesus says on his way to the cross. I want obedience like that. I want to see the world the way that you see it. And I want to protect my mind from the lies of this world. Because there's something about saying what I believe has got to be exposed in how I live. My last little word is this. Living a life that says yes to Jesus is only a response. It is not a way to earn God's favor, God's merit, God's love. By realizing that you're living in brokenness and trying to stop that and do something different is not a way for God to say I love you more. I'm glad you did that. Everything's going to be fine. Living in obedience is a response to what Christ has already done for us. Because he has rescued me, I want to be obedient. I'm not trying to be obedient so that I'll find favor with him. That's not how the gospel works. You are out of favor with God, broken, there's nothing you can do. When God rescues us, our life of obedience, I get to say yes. Because of what he's done for me. I want to forgive people. I want to help the marginalized. I want to love the orphan and the widow. I want to protect my heart. Why? Because of what you have done for me and what you call me and how you have rescued me. Not the other way around. Obedience is a living response. It's time to get out of our heads and our hearts and begin to live lives that say, thank you, Jesus. Yes. Let's pray together.